Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside says, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I wonder if I asked people, uh, if we've made New Year's resolutions, how many of us are flagging already with a resolution to pray more? Prayer is something it seems like everyone does, and yet everyone struggles with. Uh, Everyone seems to do it from the prescribed prayers in stuffy churches of a morning to the instinctive cries of, oh my God. When I googled the subject of how to pray, there were over a billion search results. Yet it seems to be something that we all have a hard time with. When I was a student at Bible studies, there were three recurrent prayer requests that became a sort of cliché. They were time management, quiet times, and prayer. And the section of Luke's Gospel we're dealing with today seems to suggest that the last two of these are foundations for the life of someone following Jesus. In the passage before, we see that foundational is that they listen to Jesus' word. And here we see that foundational is the fact that they talk to God. And fortunately for us, the disciples seem to have struggled with prayer as much as we do. If we've ever nodded off in the prayer meeting, we're in the same boat as the disciples the night before Jesus died. And so they do what anyone would do when they need to learn a new skill. No, they didn't Google it. They asked an expert. Just as when our young people come to learn to drive, they'll find someone who's been driving for a lot longer and ask them to teach them. They also asked someone with a lot of experience in prayer. And they were very fortunate in who they had to ask for advice. They asked Jesus to teach them how to talk to God, how to do what he'd been doing since time began. And Luke, very fortunately for us, preserves in his writings what Jesus teaches the disciples on how to pray. And Jesus teaches them two things, what they can be confident to pray and why they should be confident to pray. So what can we be confident to pray? Well, in verses 2 to 4, Jesus gives the disciples an outline of what they should pray for. 
an outline which starts by reminding them of who it is they're praying to. Father, what a great truth, so simply put. God the Son teaches the disciples and those who follow after them to address God the Father just as he does. Indeed, one pastor has pointed out that if it weren't for the clear promise of the gospel that God will and has adopted those who turn to follow Jesus as his children, then it would be the folly and madness of presumption to call on God as Father in this way. Yet since God warmly welcomes us into his family, we should come to him as Jesus teaches us. And we should be sure to remind ourselves of the grounds on which we pray to God. Jesus will return to this idea later on and show how this changes the way we approach prayer. So then Jesus unpacks what the disciples should ask God for in prayer in verse 2. And the first thing he teaches them that we can be confident to pray for is God's glory. The prayer Jesus teaches us begins with the pleas that God's name would be honoured and that his kingdom would come. He calls his followers to ask in this prayer for daily needs that the glory of God may shine in the world and be duly acknowledged. We ask that God's name would be hallowed. That is, that it would be recognised as holy. That we and those around us would recognise God for who he is and would worship him. And this is coupled in verse 2 with asking that God's kingship would come. It's good to ask for the final coming of God's kingdom in all its fullness. Uh, We'll see next week that this is something Jesus instructs his followers to seek. But here in this prayer for daily needs, it seems to be that that's not what's being sought. Indeed, when Jesus teaches people to pray a similar form of words in the Sermon on the Mount, the record is that he teaches people to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Just prior to this, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out 72 disciples to announce in the surrounding towns that the kingdom of God has come near, with the implication that people should become subjects of the king of God's kingdom. So here the prayer that God's kingdom would come is a prayer that we'd see the extension of that kingdom through more people entering into citizenship, and that we would see it more clearly amidst the world as we see its subjects living in greater obedience to their king. Uh, That's been quite a challenge for me in the weeks leading up to this, to be reminded that Jesus calls us to pray for God. How often I jump in my prayers to the things I think I need without thinking to ask that God would be glorified or to seek his priorities in the prayer. And yet, Some people would say that this means to lose sight of our own interests in prayer, but that's to fall off the other side of the horse. We can easily fall into the error of being entirely self-centred in prayer, but we can also fall into the error of being so pious in prayer that we never pray for our own needs and become entirely self-reliant in our daily lives. But the prayer Jesus teaches his followers to pray in these three verses perfectly balances those two elements of God's glory and our needs. And ultimately, to ask that God would be honoured and that his kingdom would come is not to look beyond our needs, but to fix our eyes on our greatest needs. Even in these first petitions, the prayer is entirely self-interested. It's of unspeakable advantage to us that we and those around us 
worship God more fully in word and deed. For example, that we'd see less conflict in the world as we obey the command of our king to love one another. So Jesus calls us to remember that these blessings come through honouring God and Christ his king. And so not just to ask for the blessing, but for its source. So we can be confident, according to Jesus, to pray for God's glory. And we can be confident also to pray for our daily needs. Indeed, that God would be glorified as he meets our daily needs. Having prayed for the advance of God's kingdom, we are to pray, according to Jesus, to the Father, to meet our personal needs as he describes them in verses 3 and 4. We're called to ask God to meet our need for physical provision of our daily bread in verse 3. And we're to ask God for us to meet our spiritual needs, to deal with our past sins and to keep us from falling into future sin in verse 4. In all this, we're to recognise our utter dependence on God, to come to him in need, acknowledging that it is God who provides the food on our tables, or if we're living a bit less hand-to-mouth, that keeps our freezers from going into catastrophic meltdown. It's in coming to God in this way that we acknowledge that only God can bridge the gap we've made between him and ourselves by rejecting his authority, and that likewise, we have no strength for living a good and holy life except for the strength we receive from God. And what a great encouragement, actually, to see this in the context of Luke to see that God has already answered one of these requests. The disciples, as they went away and were walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem, praying this prayer, every step Jesus took towards Jerusalem and the place of crucifixion to bear their debts for them there was an answer to their prayer for forgiveness. And because God has answered that prayer, we can be sure that he'll answer the other prayers he teaches us to make. We can be certain he'll hallow his name, that he'll cause his kingdom to come, that he'll give us our daily needs, that the death of Jesus for our forgiveness will continue to be sufficient as we fall into sin, and that he will be at work in us to enable us to live holy lives resisting temptation. So Jesus teaches us what we can be confident to pray. And then he moves on to answer a disciple's a question the disciples never asked. He answers why they can be confident to pray. And we can be confident to pray because we pray to our Heavenly Father. Now, I suspect there's a reason why none of us would think to ask the Queen or the Prime Minister to fix a pothole in our road. We're more likely to write a letter to the council, if even to do that. And I suspect the reason we are unlikely to do that is that we're not likely to ask people for help if we don't think they'll help us. In the same way, is the reason we don't pray for help from God that in our heads or hearts we don't think he'll answer. Well, Jesus moves into a discussion of this very question and he reassures the disciples that God will answer prayer knowing that the disciples will need this assurance as they rely on the Father after Jesus' death. Jesus reassures them that God is only too eager to answer us when we call out to him for aid. It seems that Luke records this teaching for the very same reason, that his readers need to have the same confidence as they struggle to follow Jesus. 
And we need this confidence too, as we struggle in a world that makes us doubt that God is there for us. We need God's help to live as citizens of his kingdom. So Jesus begins by asking the disciples in verses 5 to 7, whether they can imagine having a friend who would turn them away when they came in the middle of the night asking for bread to entertain an unexpected guest. Can they imagine having a friend who would turn them away in that situation, not because they didn't have the bread, but because they couldn't be bothered to get out of bed? And the question would have been a no-brainer to the disciples. Of course, they couldn't imagine having a friend like that. They knew that the whole village had a duty to see that guests were provided for. It would have been unimaginable for them that a friend with the means wouldn't do their duty and come to the aid in this situation. And particularly when the excuses are so ludicrous, they're almost humorous. Oh, I might wake the kids. And, you you know, the door's already bolted. Doors, bolts aren't exactly heavy. And the kids will settle down again. Come on, you'd risk waking the kids by unbolting the door if you were caught short in the middle of the night. What kind of lousy friend will do this when they're caught short for their bladder's sake, but not for friendship's sake? Can you imagine having such a lousy friend? And yet even this wretched friend, Jesus says in verse 8, even he, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, would help you. The second half of verse 8 explains why this friend will help. However, the reason for it is a word which has proved difficult to translate. Some translations say because of his persistence or audacity, others because of his impudence. The word in question literally means because of his lack of shame. The occurrence of two hises in this verse most naturally means that both the times that we see his is the same person. And so scholars who live in the Middle East suggest, alongside the footnote that we have in our NIVs, that his lack of shame is not shamelessness, but rather the lack of shame attached to his name, which he would want to preserve in the town. So even if he will not act for friendship's sake, even if he would make such shameful excuses, He will act to preserve the honour of his name. And Jesus' point is this. If even this no-good friend would help us in our hour of need, if even they would get up and provide for us, how can we think that God won't? How can we think that God the Father won't answer us in our need when a lousy friend would? What an insult. To suggest he would be less willing to help than this kind of worthless friend. Inconceivable. If it would be shameful for even this lousy friend, if it would be so shameful even for them that they would act to preserve the honour of their name, how could the God who asks us to pray his name would be hallowed, not act to avoid such shame coming to it? So Jesus gives his disciples the command to ask, to seek, to knock in verses 9 and 10, confident that they are appealing to someone better than this lousy friend. And you almost want to tell Jesus in verses 9 to 10, it's all right, we get the point, you don't need to labour it so much. 
Three separate images, asking, seeking, knocking. Six times telling us God will respond. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. It's a bit excessive. But Jesus recognises how prone we are to forget this. In our times of struggles, how easy it is to doubt it. He knows the trials and tests the disciples he's speaking to will face as they take the message of the gospel to the nations. And so he hammers home the point that God is not stingy, but generously disposed to come to aid us in our need. And in doing so, he brings up one of the themes that Luke is so keen to highlight in his account of Jesus' life. That Jesus came to bring loving relationship with God to every kind of people. As Jesus looks at his ragtag bunch of disciples, the fisherman, the terrorist, the collaborator, and as he looks at the crowds that gathered to him, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, he says, everyone who asks receives. Not just everyone who's good enough will be answered, but everyone who asks. No wonder Luke preserves this for his audience. No doubt he wanted them to know that they were part of the whoever. That God would listen to them even though they weren't Jews, but Gentiles. Perhaps very new to their faith. The words of Jesus that the one who seeks find applies as much to them as to anyone else. Indeed, it applies to us as much as to anyone else. And for us, particularly if you're visiting us today and don't yet follow Jesus, or listening and haven't yet decided to commit your life to him. This is the great inclusivity and exclusivity of the gospel. We see at the start and the end of Jesus' teaching on prayer that Jesus is giving the assurance that God will answer to those who pray to God as their father. That is, those who are members of God's people. So in this sense, the gospel is exclusive. But if we ask who can become a part of that family, the answer of verse 13 is that God will give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks him. That is to say that if anyone from whatever background, past and struggles, asks God to follow his King Jesus, to forgive them of their rebellion against God, he will undoubtedly answer them. That's the great inclusivity of the gospel that anyone from any land and situation can be made a child of God and can then expect him to support them, to answer their prayers as they live as kingdom subjects. And isn't it such a great reassurance of that as we look around ourselves today to see people from, well, certainly every background I could think of. And then Jesus moves on. He, in a sense, comes back to say the point from verse 5 to 7 again, but in different and stronger language. How could God not be generously disposed to support us in this way? He's our heavenly Father, more faithful to answer than the friend before. Indeed, as Jesus will go on to reassure the disciples, he's better than a human father, or indeed a human mother. See in verses 11 and 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we, as imperfect, sinful parents, says verse 13, know to give good, not harmful gifts to our children, how could God not do the same? Because of our rebellion against God, there is no area of our lives which isn't tainted by our idolatrous desire to have the universe revolve around ourselves. We don't love our children perfectly. They try our patience and make us angry. Sometimes we lose our temper with them when we shouldn't because we've had a hard day at work, because it's been particularly stressful, whether that's the first century parent on the farm or the 21st century parent in the office. My father once told me in candor when I had grown up a bit that you'd never imagine yourself being tempted to hit a baby until you have one. And yet even we aren't perverse enough to give a child a cup of bleach when they ask for a glass of water. If that's so, if even we wouldn't do that, how can we think in our hearts that God would respond to us asking for help with anything less than goodness? To suggest that he would answer our pleas by giving us a harmful gift like a scorpion. He's perfect. Gracious, compassionate. How can we think he would be more evil than us in giving? Now, if we know how to give good gifts, then God must be even better at giving than us. Indeed, the Father will give the most generous gift of all to those disciples and those who would follow after them. He'll give them the Holy Spirit. He'll bring them into his family, forgiving their sins, adopting them as his own, advancing his kingdom and thereby bringing honour to his name. And he'll continue to be at work in them through the Holy Spirit. In the next chapter of Luke, in Luke 12 verses 11 and 12, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit will equip them with what to say when they're dragged before rulers and authorities as they live out the life God is putting them into, to answer these first prayers for his glory, God tells them that the Holy Spirit will equip them for that. So God continues to answer the prayer for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come through the work of the Spirit in bringing us to faith and keeping us walking following Jesus. What a relief it is to know that we're not relying on ourselves or on other men and women, or on the state, or on the market for our lives, but on the hand of our almighty Heavenly Father, who's promised to provide for us in our need. So in conclusion, Jesus has taught us firstly what we can be confident to pray, that we can be confident to pray for God's glory and for our needs as we live under God's kingship. And secondly, Jesus has taught us why we can be confident to pray. Because we pray to our good Heavenly Father, and it's inconceivable for him not to provide for his children. For those who have been adopted by God, made his children by trust in Jesus, there should be full assurance that the Father will give them every good thing that they need to live in his kingdom. As it is present now, and to endure to see its future coming.
So we shouldn't hesitate to ask. We should be vigorously confident to pray for the advance of God's kingdom and for our needs as its citizens because we know we're asking for these things from our loving Heavenly Father.